Well, good morning, church. It's good to be here with you uh, and to, to speak uh, a little bit more on the Gospel of John. Um, before I do, I do want to extend a happy Father's Day to everyone. I hope you feel encouraged and celebrated for the roles that, that you um, play in our, in our families and in the lives of our children. Um, I also just wanted to draw attention to the fact that today is also Juneteenth. Uh, I grew up in Texas, so the adoption of what was a state holiday in my childhood as a national holiday is significant for me. Juneteenth always reminds me of the now and not yet reality of so many things in life, which of course is also reflected in many aspects of the Christian story. The reality of promised emancipation that Lincoln announced for enslaved black Americans wasn't received until June 19, 1865 in Texas when Union soldiers landed in Galveston, a full two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. In some ways, this fits with the central theme of the Gospel of John, that Jesus had come to establish his radical revolutionary kingdom. Jesus did, in fact, do so, but we live, of course, in the midst of a now and not yet reality of that kingdom. May we come and follow him into the work and purpose of that kingdom. When I was in college, on particular nights of the week, the dorm living rooms filled with people gathering to watch their favorite TV shows. From friends to ER to Survivor, people would do the best they could to schedule their night around their favorite show. Of course, this was often more of a social experience than anything. There was one show in particular, though, that was a little bit different. On this particular show, the TV host would invite guests to talk about outlandish things from their lives. There were people caught cheating, people trying to figure out who their baby's father was, live DNA test revelations, and almost every episode contained an all-out brawl. This was a trashy show, but people would gather in the dorms to watch it, to have a laugh, and because, of course, everything was ridiculous and over the top. One thing that stood out from this show was a statement that was repeated over and over and over by the people on this show. A man may have cheated multiple times, but when the O's and the ahs and the pointing from the TV audience came, the guests on the show would inevitably shout out, don't judge me, don't judge me. In many ways, as I reflected on the passage for the week, it made me ask some questions. Why are we afraid of judgment? What does this fear and the countless reels from this particular TV show about don't judge me, tell us about the process of being judged. There are a lot of stereotypes we have about judgment, and I think most of these are probably negative, from a snide comment about a lightning bolt striking us down, to Judge Judy-like images of being berated and belittled, from images of the pearly gates, which is more often than not, uh, you know, sort of this idea of exclusion, to perceived or real judgments about how we parent how we dress, our perspectives and thoughts on everything political, which of course is everything in the way that we think about things now, we seem to have significant disdain of judgment. There are countless other stereotypes we could talk about, and most of them I think are probably bad. But I think it is helpful for to, think, to think about this a tiny bit as we look at today's passage from the book of John. But before we get into the text of the day, I think it is helpful to take a step back to look at the big picture. The Gospel of John is written to tell us a story. It is easy to miss things when we look at a single passage without remembering what has happened before. 
The story in the Gospel of John is persuasive. It is meant to persuade the hearer, the reader, that this Jesus is the King, the Messiah, the King who fulfills the story of God from creation to Moses to David to the kings and prophets of, of Israel to Jesus himself. Throughout the first 15 chapters of this gospel, the prevailing theme, the central message is that Jesus has come to establish his kingdom and that this kingdom would not look like any other kingdom that the world has ever known. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, we are hearkened back to God's provision of manna from heaven in the wilderness story. Jesus as king is our sustenance, our provision, our life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world which means he is our hope. Jesus says, I am the gate, which means Jesus is the invitation, the embodiment of radical, sacrificing hospitality. As the good shepherd, Jesus as king is our comfort, our security, our place of rest. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He overcomes death, decay, and decline. He is our hope, our pathway, our road. Jesus says, I am the true vine. The vine is a metaphor throughout the Old Testament to describe Israel. Thus, Jesus as king is the fulfillment of Israel's calling, his, the election of Israel, and the purpose of Israel. In John 13, we see Jesus as a servant king washing the disciples' feet. And to give away where the story's going later in the book of John, Jesus' as king tells Peter to put the sword away when the soldiers come to arrest him. Jesus' as king humbly and mercifully dies on the cross for us, for the world. Jesus as king. This king, this kingdom looks radically different, is radically different. So when we come to today's passage, we need to remember what Jesus has said and what he has done and how it fits within the story that John is trying to tell in this gospel. Would you please stand for the reading of the scripture passage for the day? It comes from the gospel of John chapter 15, verse 26 through John 16, 15. John 15, 26 through John 16, 15. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All of this I have told you, so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so, when the, so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Verse 5. Now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good and I that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, 
because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said to the Spirit, will take from me from what is mine and make it known to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may have a seat. So John 14 through 17, as I think um, several have said in the last few weeks, as Olivia and Scott and Gabby and Mitchell have all spoken from this section in John 14 through 17, is often referred to as the farewell discourse. Discourse just means discussion or conversation or sermon. In this section, Jesus sort of says the same thing over and over and over. Persecution is coming, Jesus is leaving, the Holy Spirit is coming. Today's passage follows this pattern. In John 16, 1 through 4, Jesus tries to prepare the disciples for the coming hardship. Now, if we had been paying attention thus far in the Gospel of John, this hardship and opposition doesn't really come out of nowhere. Think of what Jesus has said and done. What would the implications of what Jesus has said and done be? So just a little bit of what we had just talked about as a background. Jesus' bread of life would challenge the wealthy, those who control the economy. Gatekeepers are typically the powerful, the politicians, the kings, the elite, the judges, the religious leaders, not a lowly carpenter from a backwater in the Roman Empire. Jesus, as the way, would undermine the entire cultural value system of the day. The Roman way was one of domination. The winner takes all, use anything and everyone to achieve one's own goals and desires. The powerful would find the way of Jesus, the way of sacrifice and service, as foolish and ridiculous. Jesus claimed to be king, but the Romans were in charge. The Romans would have viewed this as a threat. Jesus, as the true vine, would have challenged and reimagined Israel's self-identity, the way it viewed itself and the special status that Israel felt it had with God. Forgiving sin, talking to women, hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, all of this was appalling to the religious leaders. Jesus referring to himself over and over with the phrase, I am, I am, clearly referring to the name of God, Yahweh, from the, the story of Moses and the burning bush. This would have been horribly offensive and troubling to many and most Jews of the day. Who would be upset by the actions and words of Jesus? Pretty much everyone. Everyone would have been mad at this Jesus. The Romans, the leader, religious leaders, Jews, the powerful, the elite, people controlling the economy, the famous. Jesus offers a radical way of being, a new kingdom, a powerful opportunity to reimagine a broken world, a broken community. Clearly, the opposition would be strong. Jesus, in his mercy in these first few verses of chapter 16, was trying to prepare for the disciples for what was coming. I ask us, who would be upset if we lived as though Jesus were king? 
What would it look like if we lived as though Jesus was our bread of life, our provision, our sustenance? Would we view employees and people as commodities to be discarded and thrown away when things get tight or tough? How would we view our 401k and their declining values? Our jobs, would we be checking our email, work email on weekends? What would we buy? How would Google, Amazon, or our employers respond if we lived as Jesus' bread of life? Who are the people who try to be gatekeepers in our world? Twitter, TikTok, Facebook likes, again, the seemingly rigid boundaries of political ideologies. Do we, the church, act as the gatekeeper? How would the powerful, the cool, the trendy respond if we, the church, truly lived the radical invitation, the sacrificing hospitality of our, sac- of our Savior King? Clearly, the world tries to sell us a myriad of different paths to fulfillment and purpose. How would people promoting those paths respond if we truly lived as, Je- as though Jesus was the way? We are often convinced that living the life is a tropical destination with a fruity drink and no responsibilities or obligations. Who would be upset if we truly lived as though Jesus was our life? Now, in this passage, in the beginning of John chapter 16, Jesus says a few things are going to happen or or most likely will happen. But the one I want to sort of mention or focus is this idea of being put out of the synagogue. Jesus says that they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, I'm not sure we fully grasp what this means in our context, and part of this is because we tend to live relatively compartmentalized lives. The synagogue was the center of Jewish life. There was no community outside of it. They would have relied on the synagogue for help, assistance, relationships. The only way to marry off their children would have been through the relationships in the synagogue. And having married children would have been their social security and their care in old age. They couldn't simply go like consumers down the road to the other 12 synagogues in town. Being put out of the synagogue would have been catastrophic. Hardship is coming. Now, I want to draw attention in chapter 16, verses 5 through 7a. 5 through 7a. Jesus says, Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me where are you going. Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Jesus was leaving. When I was in college, my mom was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. A few years later, my mom was clearly dying. In some ways, we were already slowly losing her. She had quit eating, and her moments of being awake became fewer and fewer. It was a good month before her passing that I remember her last uh, moments of coherence. My family had lived for a while knowing what was coming, And yet standing beside her, holding her hand as she drew her last breath, in an instant, her presence was gone. We were comforted knowing that she was no longer in pain and, of course, that she was with Jesus, but her presence was gone. My biggest cheerleader, my advocate, my teacher, my therapist was gone. What we had feared for years, yet knew was coming, had happened. We could feel the loss of her presence instantly. I'm sure many of you can relate. So imagine what the disciples must have been feeling. Confusion, loss, grief, fear. 
The disciples had walked with Jesus for three years, and they had, they had abandoned and left everything to follow this Jesus. They believed that he was their Messiah, their king, and that he would establish a kingdom that seemed to look like every other kingdom of the day, one of increasing power and status, success and victory. And Jesus leaving didn't really match those plans. Notice in this passage what the disciples were focused on. They were focused on what they were losing, not what they would gain. They did not understand. Sometimes I think it must have been easier to have followed Jesus uh, if I'd lived during that day, that it would be easier to have faith and to live a faithful life if I'd lived during the time of Jesus. But the disciples clearly didn't get it. In John 13, we see that, the, that they didn't understand that this new kingdom, that Jesus' king, was the way of a humble, lowly servant. They still aspired for increasing status and power, for victory, for, kingdom of, for a kingdom of this world. In the rest of John, we continue to see that the disciples didn't get it, cutting off an ear of a soldier, denying Jesus, being absent and nowhere to be found at the crucifixion, doubting the testimony of the women, it is clear that the disciples didn't get it. This helps me to extend a tiny bit of grace to myself, to us, because I'm just not always sure that I get it. The presence of God is a significant marker of God's people. There are a few things that separate out Israel in the Old Testament, but one is clearly the presence of God. The picture on this slide is of a cloud and the pillar of fire from the Exodus story. The cloud and the fire were symbols of God's presence, of his abiding in and among the people of God. The tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament also represent the indwelling of Yahweh among the people and mark Israel as, unique, as a unique people and a distinct people with a distinct and unique purpose. Jesus fulfills the promise of God's presence as the incarnation as Emmanuel, God with us. And here God's presence is seemingly leaving. Something seems to be amiss. In verses 15, six, uh, 26 through 27, and then picking back up in verse 7, it says, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. And then in verses 7 and following, it says, Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I'm going to stop there. Picture an elementary school gym. An elementary PE class. There's a group of students actively and energetically playing dodgeball. After a few minutes of play, Jose goes to his teacher and says, I hit TN with the dodgeball but he didn't go out. This made me think about our original image of judgment. 
lightning bolts, Jerry Springer, our aversion to being judged. We actually do want judgment. We know that the world is broken and messed up. We all long for justice, just like Jose, who wanted me to be the advocate and determine that Tien was in fact cheating and that Tien was in the wrong and that Tien would face the just consequences of his actions. The trouble is that we don't want judgment on ourselves. And we also recognize that human judgment uh, isn't, isn't always good, right? Human judgment uh, is, is not impartial. It's not fair. The image in this passage about the Holy Spirit is clearly legal. It sort of draws uh, the image of a court, a courtroom scene. During the Roman period, the accusers and the accused in a case would plead their own case. There were no lawyers present. There wasn't anyone to defend the accused. At the same time, a legal battle was horribly expensive. So the poor would have had almost zero means of fighting a legal case in the courts. They would lose by default and most likely end up as slaves. Now, I'm convinced that we today miss something here because of our own experiences. I have never known the kind of suffering and hardship that Jesus describes. I think part of this could be because maybe I don't always look very different from the world. I often use pizza, coffee, scones as my comforter. I look to an election victory or a stable job as my security. I long for another trip to a warm and sunny beach locale to provide my rest. I find my value, my worth, my provision in my own labor, in my job. I look to the American cultural values of efficiency and outcome determined to determine the worthiness of others and in fact to determine my own worthiness. Perhaps many Americans have negative images of judgment because many of us don't feel the hardship, the difficulty, and the oppression. I mean, how would we view this if we were in Ukraine today? I fear our view of the Father as the good judge and the Holy Spirit as the advocate is missing the significance that the early church, early Christians, must have felt and known. The early church would have been crying out and pleading for an advocate against the oppression that they felt and the persecution that they were experiencing from the Romans, the religious leaders, Greek culture, from all sides. But in Jesus' departure, there is a promise of an ever-present advocate. Jesus says this would be to our advantage in dwelling in the hearts of God's people, those who are a part of Jesus' kingdom, in radical contrast to the ways of the world, Jesus promises his presence. This advocate is our cheerleader to stand firm against stumbling, our defense against being allured by the ways of the world, our strength to follow Jesus, to follow his path, to follow him into sacrifice and service to pursue his justice, to testify to his goodness through our lives, words, and actions. In verses 26 and 27 of chapter 15, it says that the advocate testifies about Jesus to the world, just as we, those given the Holy Spirit, testify 
about Jesus to the world as well. The world is simultaneously our stumbling block and our purpose. Our stumbling block because it is alluring and tempting, because the way of the world is all-consuming and prevalent, and it is a hard time, we have a hard time imagining the world as Jesus describes it. The world can't fathom the way of the cross, the path of humble service or sacrifice, of going down instead of up. The trouble is that the world creeps in. Do we, the church, use the markers of efficiency and outcome to diagnose God's favor? Favor? In other words, is the bigger and wealthier church the better one? What about the celebrity status of many of our religious leaders? Do our evangelism strategies and ministry programs look like another corporate marketing gimmick? Church, rightly or wrongly, I am convinced in many ways that people outside of the church think this about us. At the same time, Jesus tells us to testify to the world as the Holy Spirit does. The advocate empowers and emboldens us to testify the way of Jesus in word and deed, to live out the way of Jesus, to follow our King as bread of life, as our good shepherd, as the resurrection, the way, the truth, and the life, and to trust Jesus enough to be the gate. In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 16, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. I usually think about the Holy Spirit's work as being in and among believers, but notice that the advocate is working here in the world. Now, in this particular case, the majority of this is about as a judgment from the Holy Spirit on the world. This judgment is against the rulers of the world. It represents and sort of notes that Jesus has overthrown the powers of the world in establishing his kingdom. As Marianne Mai Thompson says, the Spirit vindicates Jesus' righteousness and exposes the world's sin by exposing the world's unbelief, its error in condemning Jesus, and its false judgments about Jesus' relationship to God. The Spirit thus bears witness to Jesus while reproving the world, and the Spirit reproves the world by bearing witness to Jesus. Inevitably, the argument is circular. To perceive the work of the Spirit, one must have the Spirit. As the branches abide in the vine, as Jesus' disciples faithfully cling to and follow him, their corporate practices and proclamation testify to the Spirit's presence in and among them. In other words, the marker of the church as a distinct people and a dis- with a distinct purpose is the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit walks alongside us, we are transformed and changed. We live differently. Our distinctiveness and our testimony then speaks to the presence of God and to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our midst. In verses 12, it says, I have much more to say. In verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. This passage also describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth and our guide. 
According to Stegman, this reference is clearly meant to remind us of Jesus being called the way, or saying that he is the way and the truth in John chapter 14. The Holy Spirit will continue the work of Jesus and his kingdom. By extension, this is what the church exists for, not only to be a community of saved people, but to continue the work of the kingdom initiated by Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for us? Be comforted. We have an advocate. Judgment is coming, but we have an advocate. The presence of God is with us. God will never leave us alone. God will advocate for justice He is the good judge. The Holy Spirit is our defense, our advocate. Despite Jesus' departure, God's presence in the Holy Spirit is with us. As a marker of us, um, this marks us as a special people with a special purpose to be a part of God's mission. We have been invited in to his story and a part of his mission to bless all people, to pursue justice and love, to testify that Jesus is king. So we today should continue the work of establishing Jesus' kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that hardship will come, but empowered and comforted by the presence, ever-present advocate. So... Let us reflect on the words of Kathy Young. She says, The Holy Spirit uses us, Christ's hands and feet in the world, to reach out to those who are suffering. God's great gift to us did not end with Christ's death and resurrection. The Spirit continues to guide and embolden Christians in every place and time to live out their faith as followers of the Lord. Instead of striving to reach the illusion of perfection, we can live as grace-filled disciples who have already been saved, in grateful response for what God has already done for each of us, we can stretch out our arms to others as Jesus stretched his to invite all to believe in him. I'd like us to ask the question, What is God calling us to be a part of in his kingdom work? What specifically can we do to advocate and testify of Jesus' kingdom? We have been given an advocate and the Holy Spirit. So how then can we be the hands and feet of Christ to those around us and to our broken world? Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your goodness, that in the midst of hardship and difficulty, that you have provided us with your Spirit, that your Holy Spirit is with us, that your Holy Spirit advocates for us, that your Holy Spirit is an ever-constant comfort to us. We pray, God, that you would allow us to be emboldened to testify of Christ's love of Christ's justice to those around us, that your spirit would allow us to extend the grace given to us 
to those in our community and in a broken world. That your spirit would empower us to reimagine and to envision a world as Christ speaks of it in this gospel, where he is king. May we see that reality in our day. We pray this through the blood of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.